This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares, and after a couple of weeks on his dream holiday roaming through the Italian hills and talking to fellow walkers about their retirement plans, I'm joined again by Tom Selby from AJ Bell. Hello. So, Tom, what are we going to be talking about this week? Thanks very much, Dan. So we've got a packed schedule this week, loads going on, so no messing about. Um, we'll be discussing the six-month anniversary of lockdown and how it's affected people's finances. Six months, I can't believe it's been that long already. Um, some big mm. news for anyone who invests in national savings and investments or NSNI products. Why loyal, loyal insurance customers could get a better deal following the latest intervention by the financial services regulator what the spectre of negative interest rates could mean for you and why AIM stocks might be vulnerable to changes in the tax system. So loads going on. But first, Dan, it's obviously been a fairly dramatic week with the announcement of some tighter lockdown restrictions by Boris Johnson as the number of COVID infections in the UK rises. So how have the markets reacted? Uh, not, not great, yeah. but I guess in the you know, in the bigger bigger scheme of things it could have been worse mm. i would have thought you know it's so over the last week the FTSE 100 is down two percent same for the s p 500 in the in america um and then some of the european markets like the the cac 40 of the dax um they're, they're down about four percent so i mean it's it's you know obviously never good to see uh, a falling stock market but um as we're recording this podcast the stock seems to be picking up again. I think particularly investors are focused on how uh, you know, the, the new um, lockdown restrictions perhaps aren't as um, sort of brutal as they could have been. They could have shut down some hospitality businesses yeah. altogether rather than simply making pubs shut at 10 o'clock. So, so in, in, when you weigh these things up, it's not, um, it's not, it's not panic time. But I think it's really clear you can see some trends on the market where investors have just cast their mind back to February when lockdown conditions were being seen around the world and looking at what stocks did well then they seem to be doing the same now so supermarkets being in demand there's uh, there's some talk that could we see another stockpiling sort of um, desperate measures by consumers at home is already taught that Morrison's has put security guards back on um, the entrances to its, to its stores in case it suddenly gets a surge in demand. And so we've seen Sainsbury shares have been up 10%, Tesco shares up 6% in a week, uh, Morrison's up 5%. Mm -hmm. So um, tech and healthcare also seen as safe havens during um, the early part of this year when the, when the markets go through a trouble period. Um, tech is, is sort of structural growth and healthcare as a play on um, increased focus on sort of trying to, to get through the pandemic. So you've had Just Eat um, and Ocado, they're both about, up about 8%. Um, AstraZeneca's up 3% on the week. And then you've got some obvious lockdown beneficiaries like pizza delivery company, yeah. Domino's. Um, Kingfisher has some positive numbers out recently talking about that we, we did sort of a boom in DIY. We're all be stuck at home. So if the idea is that 
those of us who thought we're going to be back in the office now back at home again will we do even more DIYs of Kingfishers up six percent a week um, and then there's some sadly there are some lockdown losers so uh, Green Core which makes sandwiches is down 13 percent on a week so I guess if we're Again, if we're not going to be in the office, we won't be popping out to mm. sort of the local shop um, to pick up our um, egg mayonnaise, or, what, or I guess with you, Tom, it'll be your your, your prawn sandwich, really, isn't it? So, <laughs> are you trying to suggest <laughs> that I've, I've changed since abandoning the the north and the lo the lovely Kendall Hills for, for the <laughs> south and and London and all of its uh, all of its niceties? I hope you're not. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, I guess you'll, as a sausage roll fan, you'll be, you want to know that Greg's shares are down twelve percent as well. So yeah. it's 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 any type of food. It's not not, not, yeah. not just the posh all, stuff. So all, all, um, all quite a quite a, quite it all feels a bit Groundhog Day then from from when this all happened in in February March then all the all all the kind of types of stocks that you would expect to do well and therefore be popular are picking up and though during a period of lockdown and those that you would naturally expect to struggle the sort of things that involve people going out or going into work and buying things are, are on the way down is that right yeah but there's one stock that caught my attention this morning which is ssp which um essentially runs loads of the food and drink outlets you find in airports and train stations now they're they're clearly having a tough time, but what they said was that the the, the cash burn rate for the business is way less than what they expected. So the shares shot up. So uh, one might assume a stock like SSP is a is a lockdown loser, mm. uh, particularly if we're going to be travelling less. But actually, you know, the market is rewarding um, sort of pleasant, surprising news, and of course, a, a lower cash burn rate for a company that's short of revenue uh, compared to history uh, is deemed a positive thing so it's it like always it's never it's never black and white you can't simply call it by saying this is the playbook for how the market will react in the coming days it's never that easy and so i, I, so I just there was another stop that uh, Dick Cashmire was was in uh, iag which is you know, the british airways owner so down 17 percent i mean Airlines is a tough one again. There did seem to be a pickup in sort of travel in the last couple of months, but um, I, I guess that, you know, all, all hopes have been dashed again. I, I did catch my eye that, that Qantas has actually been selling its business class pajamas uh, as, part, <laughs> as, as, as part of a way to raise a bit more money. It's got okay. you know, you know, thousands of these uh, things for, um, sitting around, no one's using them, so they're becoming a bit of a fashion item. So. Uh, um, if you get a new set of pajamas for Christmas, Tom, uh, I hope to see a Qantas logo it, on them. So. It sounds, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it sounds like a, it sounds like a bit of a yard sale. You know those things that they have in America where people just sort of get their tat and put it out on, on the lawn and hope to scrape a few, a few quid. The kind of thing you might expect, uh, expect from someone trying to get rid of some junk, but not, not necessarily what you'd expect to see from. From Qantas, but I guess that's where that's where we are in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the other things that have caught my eye on the markets this week is I've noticed that dividend cuts are picking up again. Now, in recent podcasts, we've talked about how companies are restarting dividends, um, but unfortunately, it seems now that there's you know, 
seem to be a bit of a, a setback with coronavirus. Companies are getting a bit nervous again. So we've had 53 companies so far in September have come out and said, I'm sorry, we're not going to be um, paying dividends. It, or it's going to be until 2021 until we can really think about this. So um, names like Finsbury Foods, Kingfisher and AG Bar. Um, I also saw that uh, Raw Dutch Shell's below 10 quid again. So mm. if you go back to March, the market low, it was £9.16. So since then, the oil price has uh, struggled. It had a bit of a rally. Now it's struggling again. Um, but you know, th there is some chatter that Shell's doing a, a new cost-cutting review, that any savings that it can find will come on top of a $4 billion target that was set in the wake of the coronavirus crisis. So if you think that market... Um, investors love when companies are saving money. Um, that's why we see uh, positive share price reactions to big job cuts as well, which is obviously not very nice if you work there, but um, if companies are saving money. So we'll see. So if, if Shell comes out with some um, the results of this um, speculated review and says it's going to be uh, you know, saving more money, I think that might uh, be received as a positive thing from on the market um, yeah. and then just and then the final thing just on the markets was was tesla um so four consecutive quarters of growth have certainly sort of fueled its share price but and it's now the most valuable car company in the world wow but it's just it's had a, a an update on its um strategy plans and talking about what's going to ways to make batteries cheaper and more powerful but that, that actually knocked the shares by six percent white 50 billion dollars of its market value so again the market reacting rather strangely to something that could be long-term positive punished so i mean tom are you are you an electric car driver or i'm not you, i'm not, you know, I'm not no, no i think i think i've i think i've said on the podcast before i'm not a car driver anymore i'm a, I'm a multiple um, driving test failure um and of course uh, i remember yes <laughs> yeah and i used to uh, yeah I, I had a car in london for a while but had not had need for one for a little bit of time, although actually, um, was it yesterday or the day before? My uh, my my mum and dad said that they're trying to offload their old um, their old VW, um, so they're offering that at a very competitive price. But I'm still not sure, frankly, if I've really got any need for that. And I certainly, I don't think I'll be joining the uh, the the Twitterati of people who love nothing more than talking about their Tesla and how amazing it is. I'm sure they're very good, but it's uh, I don't think it's an avenue I'll be going down. Anytime, anytime soon, Dan. <laughs> well, there's an electric truck uh, sort of startup business called Nikola in okay. America, where the founder, Trevor, Trevor Milton, has just resigned amid allegations it misled investors by making exaggerating claims on, it, on its technology. And there was a, there's been a report on the business which said um, a couple of years ago, there was an advert. You saw one of its trucks that appeared to be driving down a highway in a promotional video but actually what what had happened was they they towed it to the top of a hill and just let it roll down and they filmed it um and actually there was nothing driving the car they haven't been able to create um the, you know the, the power to, to drive this vehicle so um oh. it, it, you know it's it, it's hilarious really isn't it so um, that's brilliant it sounds so like it sounds like it sounds things, like it it sounds like a scene from The Simpsons or something like that, doesn't it? A slightly, a slightly mad car manufacturer who can't quite get it over the line and so shoves it down the hill and hopes, hopes for the best. And Homer, pi Homer piles all his life <laughs> savings into it. It turns out it's just gravity that's making it move. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. 
So it's now been six months since Boris Johnson first announced lockdown measures in response to the pandemic. So Tom, I know you've been doing some work looking at how people's finances have been affected. So what have you found? Yeah, so this is, uh, we've, we've since, since March and since lockdown um, kicked, kicked off, we've been, um, we've been kind of running continuous pieces of research just to see how people are doing financially and to take, um, take the temperature of the nation in a way and find out exactly how different people have been affected. So we had the, the latest batch of that data um, through this week. So overall, we've seen that just over a fifth of people, so this is UK, a survey of 2,000 UK adults, so just over a fifth are financially worse off as a result of the pandemic, although as we've mentioned before there are people who are better off as well, so about 14% of people say they're better off and, that's, and that will be the group of people who have managed to keep their jobs or perhaps have been furloughed but the decrease in the cost that they're taking on a day-to-day -day basis have gone down by more than the amount of their wages have gone down so you've got a, a kind of divided nation there in terms of those who've been affected by the pandemic and those who haven't been affected by the pandemic um, but some interesting splits so this um, the the financial impact of coronavirus hasn't been held been a hasn't been uh, equal on all people. So based on our research, almost a quarter of women say they've been financially disadvantaged by COVID-19 versus a fifth of men. So it's more likely um, if you're a woman that you'll say you've been financially disadvantaged because of COVID-19 than if you're male. Um, a couple of reasons why that could be the case. So it may reflect the fact that um, some of the sectors that have been really badly hit by uh, COVID-19 and a subsequent lockdown, so sectors like hospitality and retail tend to employ significant numbers of women. Um, it's also the, still the case that um, women are more likely to work in low-paid and insecure jobs that might have been the first victims of furloughing or may have been made, um, maybe made unemployed altogether as a result of COVID. So a couple of reasons there why we do, we see that, that slight gender, gender split in terms of the impact of COVID-19. Um, in terms of how much financially people have lost out in the first six months, it's men who report being worse off. So those, who, those, those men who say they're worse off as a result of COVID-19, say they've lost out on £3,000 roughly over that six-month six period um, during, as a result of the com pandemic compared to around £2,100 for women who say they've been made um, worse off. Um, the reason that people have been made, made, have made worse off, um, fairly predictable, it's a drop in the incomes that people are receiving. So again, people who are being made furloughed or, um, being, or being made, losing their jobs altogether reporting that, that is, that's the primary reason that they have suffered during this um, pandemic. One other thing, um, interesting point I think came out of it was just on the people who are, who are better off as a result of uh, COVID-19. So we said about 14% of the people we questioned said they're better off as, as a result of, uh, of lockdown, while 60% said that their financial situation is about the same. Of those that are better off, um, the average, uh, the average overall that they are better off is just over two thousand five hundred pounds. But that's highest among younger people. So, eighty if you're age eighteen to thirty-four, then you're likely to be better off by more than people who are over the age of fifty-five. So, if you look at that, that eighteen to thirty-four group, then they're better off by an average of almost two thousand eight hundred quid, 
while when you look at the older group, so those aged 55 and over, they're better off by just under £2,000. And again, that's likely to be um, factoring in people's lifestyle, the fact that perhaps younger people are more likely to spend going out and on a day-to-day -day basis than, than older people might do. But I think when you take that all together and all those results together, what we're, what we're seeing is that there's already been significant financial pain for millions of people and these results will represent millions of people across um, across the country although some have actually been better off and in fact when you if you look at what the um, the OBR the Office for Budget Responsibility has said previously it's actually expecting the savings ratio so the amount of income that people save um, as a proportion of the total income that they receive to increase and re potentially reach record levels as a result of the pandemic and the fact that costs have gone down significantly so you may see more people who are who who are not directly affected in terms of their income able to save more but the impact of coronavirus clearly hasn't been um, equal across all um, across all genders or indeed across all geographies and again this is quite probably unsurprising but if you look at the if you look at the spread of the responses to the survey based on where people live people in the east of England, East Midlands, West Midlands and Yorkshire and Humberside tend to be much more likely to say that they're worse off. So somewhere between 26 and 28% of people from those regions say that they've been made worse off by COVID-19 compared to around 18% for places like the Lond London and the South East. So I think that's just a reflection of the fact that people in London and the South East tend to probably be in more um, in higher wage, higher skilled and therefore more stable jobs than people in those in those other areas. So it's it's unfortunately it's just another another thing that's going to divide the country in various ways in terms of the impact of, of coronavirus. And as, as as we said at the top of the top of the podcast today, unfortunately it's it's likely to only get worse now we were, we're, we're just about to see the furlough scheme ending in October although I know there's been some reports that alternative levels of support might be might be put in place clearly we're entering this second phase of lockdown as well which isn't quite like the first phase but clearly isn't going to be good for a lot of businesses and so for a lot of people's incomes as well so there's been some suffering so so far but in all likelihood and it's a slightly depressing message but in all likelihood for lots of people it's going to get worse as we move through 2020 and into 2021. So we see the Bank of England's decision to cut interest rates to record lows, impact on rates available to savers. But this week we saw one of the biggest providers announce some quite dramatic changes. So Tom, what's going on there? Yeah, so um, this uh, for anyone who saves or was thinking of saving through national savings and investments, this is potentially some bad news so a bit of um, a background to this so clearly we've seen interest rates have been going down generally the bank of england um, cut the base rate to to 0.1 percent in response to um, the coronavirus pandemic and subsequent lockdown to try and get people spending more money and that's led to lots and lots of um, cash savings providers cutting their interest rates as well now this had led to NSNI being actually one of the best buys for a lot of cash products for, um, for a reasonable period of time. And that was because 
the um, the treasury it, what the, the treasury sets NSNI a, a funding target so the amount of money that it needs to to bring in um, from savers so NSNI is essentially a state-owned state-owned bank and so they they increased the amount that the that NSNI needed to raise from six billion for 2020-21 to 35 billion which in order to raise that money, they needed to keep the interest rates on the products they offered higher so that they were attractive to people who are looking to invest their money. However, NSNI now says that it's attracted significant flows of money. So it saw um, inflows of, um, of £19.9 billion pounds in the, just the first quarter of 2020-21. So it feels like it, it, there's less of a need for it to keep its rates at those extremely high in comparison to the rest of the market um, levels and so it's cut back pretty much across the board so a few a few examples so nsni's direct saver products and um, so these these changes are going to take effect from 24th of november 2020 and um, so in uh, in a couple of months time so the direct saver product used to pay um, an interest rate of one percent um, that's going to go down to just 0.15 percent its investment account paid what pays eight not eight percent currently. That's going to go down to just 0.01 percent, so a 79 basis point drop, essentially going down to nothing. Um, its direct ISA uh, cash product pays 0.9 percent at the moment. That's going to, going to go down to just 0.1 percent as well, so an 80 basis point drop. Its junior ISA product um, going down from 3.25 percent to just 1.5 percent, so that's cut by more than half um, and of course various other products as well and perhaps the the one that NSI is most well known for the its premium bonds um, so these are the these are the savings products where you put your money in and you uh, have the chance of winning a winning a cash prize um, the uh, the chances of you winning any prize are going to drop from uh, of any one pound bond member winning any prize is going to decrease from 24,500 to one to 34,500 to one. So um, NSNI has been a really good home for lots of people's cash savings and I'm sure will continue to be for certain people but um, for anyone who's got their money held um, there at the moment that's going to be uh, something that they're probably going to want to review and make sure they're still getting the, the best deal possible for their, for their cash savings. I think there's an issue there that a lot of people may not care uh, entirely just, you know, uh, sorry, I think the issue there, a lot of people, um, their priority is to put the money with NSNI because they feel the money is safe. Yes, it's backed point. by the treasury. So they may not uh, be too bothered about uh, cutting interest rates, but, but that said, you know, it's a very, very big cut, aren't they, in, in relative terms? So, um, you know, they should should think about can they get something better somewhere else? Yeah, um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And you need you need to remember that you're, the the treasury backing is also, is obviously significant, but um, the financial services compensation scheme exists for um, where you invest your money in cash for in um, other uh, with other regulated um, banks and lenders. Obviously, make sure that you're. Your money is going with um, uh, a bank or a lender that is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, so you have that protection in the event that something um, something goes wrong. But you're 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 absolutely right. One of the key reasons that people do save through NSNI is because 
um, they they feel that their money is whether it's an emotional thing or something else people feel that their money is is safer there perhaps than with um, with other um, other institutions but if you look certainly if you look at some of the rates available on some of the accounts you're you're going to be locking into um, a real terms uh, loss if inflation returns to the economy. And obviously we've seen inflation drop significantly recently, so that may be less of an issue in the short term, but certainly over the, over the long term, some of the rates on offer there are, are, aren't necessarily going to be the best deal for your money. They may be better than some and they may be still be suitable for, for you. But I think it's, it's just what, it's one of those things where when you, I think whenever you see significant cuts in what's on offer to any product you should use it as a as a little shove just to have a think about why you're investing in that product why your money's there and whether you could be doing better elsewhere you don't have to move your money but i think it's just worth having almost in an internal conversation with yourself and perhaps with um with your with your partner and those who you, who you speak to about financial financial issues as well I mean, on on subject of interest rates, I mean, the, the, the Bank of England's base rate is record low at the moment, but um, it's possible this could go this could go negative, which is what increasingly is being talked about. How would that work for people's finances if we had a negative interest rate? Yeah, what a, what a weird world we live in. Um, it, it sort of seems to get weirder and weirder with each passing <laughs> week, and it's got to the point now where. Um, the Bank of England's governor can float the idea of negative interest rates and barely anyone really bats an eyelid. But when you, st- when you, when you stand back and look at what that means, effectively, you're having to pay, or institutions who, who store money with the Bank of England will be having to pay for the privilege of them holding their money. It's, a, it's an, an inverted and backwards um, way of viewing the relationship of the the, the borrower and uh, the person who's handing over the money and the person who's looking after the money. It's not what we're used to um, seeing. But Andrew Bailey, so the bank's governor, has suggested that's something that's within the, the bank's toolbox. Clearly, we're in unprecedented times and um, the bank, frankly, has got few other options if it wants to change, um, if, it, if it wants to stimulate demand in the economy and get, um, and get the inflation rate up to its 2% target. So it makes sense that negative interest rates would be um, something that it would consider, but it, it's not something that certainly I've ever thought I would, I would see in my lifetime. And I think most people probably wouldn't have expected to see anything even close to that coming to the fore in 2020. But that's where we are so if we think about the the impact of negative interest rates on um on savers and on investors it's really it'll be similar to any other rate cut that you would see from the bank of england so if you're planning to borrow money so for example if you're planning to buy a house then a fall in a base rate into negative territory should mean that you can borrow at a lower interest rate um, if you're on a tracker mortgage, so uh, a tracker is a product where the interest rate you pay goes up and down in line with the base rate that the Bank of England sets, then that should also see a drop in the interest rate that you are charged. Um, as is always the case when um, with, uh, with Bank of England interest rates, what's usually what's good for borrowers is bad for savers. So we've already mentioned the NSI. Um, NSI products and the fact that their rates are going down. Um, clearly, negative interest rates will be bad news for savers who've already had to endure the best part of a decade, really, of um, receiving paltry returns on their cash products. Um, I had a quick look on Money Saving Expert. As things stand, 
the best easy access rate um, for cash products in the market is somewhere just around 1%. Um, Two-year fixes can be snapped up for somewhere around 1.3, 1.4%. So better than nothing, but historically pretty low rates on offer for those who, who don't want to take um, any investment market risk. Um, I think the thing to say about negative interest rates um, is, firstly, we don't know that that's going to happen. So clearly the Bank of England was flagging this as a possibility. Um, and clearly given that rent base rate is sat at 0.1% at the moment, there's not much further um, the bank can go if it wants to influence what's happening in the economy. And secondly, when, whenever something like this, this um, happens, something like this is flagged, there's a, there can be a tendency to, to panic, to think that we're potentially entering new territory. So if we, if we had negative interest rates, this has never happened in the hundreds of years that the Bank of England has been there. So the, the idea of negative interest rates is quite abnormal and it is scary. But when you're making decisions with your money, you should focus on your as always on your appetite for risk and your um, your ability to take on those um, levels of risk. So um, if we see negative interest rates and, we, and if we look particularly at savings products, then people who are in cash products are clearly going to be tempted to um, potentially look at other, other avenues for their money. So they might want to invest that money. Now, that might be a perfectly good position, good decision, particularly for anyone who's um, looking to uh, deliver long-term growth. And when I say long term you want to be looking at least further than five years into the future um but it's something that if, if anyone if you're going to do it then you need to go in with your eyes open and understand the risks and understand that over the the short term the value of your of your fund may go down as well as up and you need to make sure that your um the stocks that you pick and the investments that you choose are in line with your own personal risk tolerances so uh, a difficult time potentially ahead for savers after what's been a really difficult decade but as always i think cool cool and calm heads are going to be required as we head into what are potentially going to be quite choppy waters now it's not just savers who may have been feeling shortchanged in recent years and the fca has been looking into how insurers treat existing customers so dan what did the regulator find and what is likely to change in this market? It's not often that people applaud the actions of the FCA, but it definitely this one has gone down very well. Um, its proposal is that car and home insurance customers should pay no more when renewing their policy than they would if they were taking out a new one with the same okay. firm. So That sounds sensible. So really, yeah, so insurers would not be able to charge existing customers more than new ones or they, they couldn't slowly increase the existing customers prices unless the risk profile has changed mm. so uh, yeah this is this is good this is not particularly new news because it's looked at this back in 2018 and there was a report 2019 um certainly hinting that the that the the loyalty issues here, loyalty penalties, I should say, were, were, were definitely being reviewed. So the, the, the insurance companies have had time to think about this. Um, so it, it's now more consultation um, until January next year, where and it says it intends to publish the rules some point in 2021. So um, at the moment, as it stands, if you've got an insurance policy that is about to come to an end, don't just let it automatically auto renew 
Mm. Um, you you want to be shopping around because you're probably going to get a better price for someone else. But when these rules do, you know, assuming that the, the proposals are, uh, get the green light, then it will be different to how you may want to be uh, shopping around for your insurance stuff. Direct line looks like it's going to be most exposed by the by this review, and it, and its shares did take a bit of a hit um, on the news the other day, but they sort of start to pick up again. But I think you know, say that the insurance industry's had time to to give this a think, and um, they're going to have to change the way they price products. Um, and I think that the, you know, they're going to have to accept that this definitely looks like it's going to be the way forward. But I can see, I can't say definitely because it's not, uh, it's still consultation. But you know, all, all signs would suggest it, it could be to the consumer's benefit. There's going to be big changes in the car and home insurance market. So one of the one of the things that struck me about um, this story when I when I saw it pop up during the week, and um, I'm sure it was the same for a lot of people, was why while you and while rightly you've given the FCA credit for um, for acting in a in a in a way that should benefit lots and lots of people by potentially huge sums of money, why has it taken the regulator so long to do something about something like this? Now every I'm pretty sure every single person who's ever shopped for an insurance product ever <laughs> knows that this is going on. And it's the kind of, it's, it, I mean, there are, there are a few things in finance where if you go down the pub and strike up a conversation with someone about something, and this isn't something I do on a regular basis, by the way, Dan, I'm not that kind of person, but if you, <laughs> if, if you just start talking to a normal person about something like, about the fact that their, um, their, their insurance renewal gets jacked up after a year or two and they get a worse deal than they would have done when they first joined. Every, I reckon large numbers of people would know that was going on and large numbers of people would feel like they were being ripped off and would feel quite angry about it. So it, I, I'm, not, I'm not expecting you to know the, the answer to this, but it just seems it, it's, while it's good news that the FCA is intervening, it seems like something that's been going on for and then been fairly obvious for a long, long time. And you just wonder why it has taken so long for anything to be done about it. Well, I think the FCA has got so much on its plate. There's so yeah, many fair. things that's wrong with mm. how um, various financial products are uh, work and and, it, and such stuff. The things that it looks it, it's trying to oversee. So, um, it's been looking at multiple parts of the the financial services industry uh, and proposing quite big changes in the last few years. So to, to its credit, um, it's definitely a very busy body, um, but you know, nothing gets changed quickly. Um, everything has to be done in through proper channels and endless consultation periods. So, um, but yeah, we have to, we have to look, take a positive view and, and think that, yeah, it, this is good. Um, yeah. So the FCA estimates the proposals could actually save consumers £3.7 billion over 10 years. You know, this is potentially massive story for anyone who has insurance, which is, you know, millions of us, isn't it? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So a good news story, which is good because I feel like we're slightly short of bad news, of good news stories. <laughs> Sorry, and I feel like that's, that's particularly coincided with me being on the podcast a little bit more. So I don't know if it's just, I don't know if I need to have a slightly sunnier disposition. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe we should start having a sort of good news item or something once a week, which, which kind of gets me out of the doldrums because I am generally a happy person, <laughs> but there's just a lot of quite miserable stuff going on, I think, at the moment. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can we'll, we'll find some good news stories. Okay. There's definitely positive things out there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, given how AIM stocks continue to be popular among many investors for their tax benefits, we thought it would be worth speaking to Philip Harrison, a tax consultant from the Wilkes Partnership, about how this space might be vulnerable to potential changes to the tax system. So let's hear what he had to say when Dan caught up with him. So Philip, thanks ever so much for joining us. Um, there seems to be growing chatter that the government is going to potentially change some tax rules and, and, and that might include some of the tax benefits associated with the AIM market. Now I was reading somewhere that an estimated third of all money in AIM is for tax planning purposes. So I imagine any changes would have huge implications for investors what what do you think might happen yes daniel i think you're absolutely right that there could be some uh, changes which have a massive impact i mean just to sort of pick up on a, a little bit of history um, the reason that aim enjoys these tax breaks is because originally the stocks were uh, quite high risk and there were some tax breaks which were grafted on to encourage people to invest. And in particular, um, what we're talking about is, is, is the fact that the shares are treated as unquoted for uh, tax purposes. They're not treated in the same way as uh, shares in companies which are, are listed on the, uh, on the main market. Um, and what that means in particular is that there's one relief, which is, I think, the, uh, the, the, the main reason why people have gone into AIM investment for tax planning purposes. One particular relief, business property relief, um, which is an inheritance tax relief. Now, business property relief has a very long history itself. And, and simplistically, the main uh, purpose behind it is to allow family businesses to be passed from generation to generation without being decimated by estate taxes. Uh, and indeed, in, in, in some situations, the business might even have to be sold if you had to pay those, uh, those taxes when one generation uh, passes, passes on or passes the business over to the next. So the idea is that businesses, family businesses, can be uh, passed on to the next generation without um, that kind of disruption. Um, and that's because they're unquoted businesses. They're, they, if, they, if they're companies, they don't have to be companies, but if they are companies, the shares in those companies um, are unquoted. They're not listed normally on any market at all. But of course, um, in the case of, of AIM shares, they are listed uh, on a market. It's just not the, uh, they're just not fully listed. Um, originally, AIM companies were small developing companies. I think the there were originally only 10 companies on, on AIM when it was first launched in the mid-90s. Uh, and they had a market cap of, I don't think it was much more than 80 million um, between them. Um, the market is huge now. Uh, the market, the total market cap is over 100 billion, I think. Uh, and there are something like 850 um, companies on it. And people investing in those companies just aren't taking the same level of risk that they once were. And so the question arises, and this may be an easy target for, for the government in these, in these challenging times, the question arises of whether it's fair for investors in you know, larger AIM companies, for example, to enjoy an enormously valuable tax relief that uh, their, their comrades, their colleagues who've invested in companies on the full list don't enjoy. I mean, the other point is that because 
people um, have been investing heavily for tax purposes. A lot of the money is being recirculated. You're not actually looking at the same situation that the, the tax break was supposed to encourage, which was putting new money into uh, you know, relatively small companies, whether they were startups or not. They were, they were, they were companies in need of uh, development funding. And the idea was that the tax break was one of the features that was supposed to encourage people to put their money in there. And now that's not happening. They're, they're buying shares from other people, from, from the estates perhaps of people who died where the, uh, where the tax relief has, has, has had, its, uh, you know, had its purpose, met its, met its desired end. Uh, and we're not looking at new money going into uh, productive development, productive investment. So I imagine if, so if the government were to change the rules um, and this inheritance tax benefit is withdrawn, the worst case scenario would be a big sell-off in a very large part of the AIM market, which I'm sure no one wants to see happen. Um, I mean, just look, is that likely or do you think that the government might actually just um, just tweak the rules rather than sort of withdraw this benefit entirely? Well, that's an interesting um, that's an interesting question, Daniel, and, and one that's uh, quite hard to to speculate on. Um, you're right. Given the kind of level that people have been encouraged to invest in AIM because of um, because of this relief. Uh, there could be a, a devastating sell-off if the relief uh, was cut away um, overnight. One, I, I, I merely speculate, but there are some classes of um, business asset which qualify for 50% relief rather than 100% relief. So if the government was minded to give more of a, a soft landing, perhaps they might uh, reduce the relief from, from uh, 100 to 50 rather than abolishing it in one in one go. Yeah, I mean, which I know that over the years I've written about the AIM market, the, the number one question I'm always asked is, can you give me a list of all the companies that qualify for business property <laughs> relief? But it's, it, it just changes all the time, doesn't it? It's, it's the yeah, source it of their earnings, isn't it, that, that matters? Yeah, yeah so. that's absolutely right, Daniel. The, the uh, bis business property relief, attracts is attracted by trading businesses not investment businesses um, so you've got to be predominantly a trading company or a trading group uh, in order to to qualify for BPR and are you very you're right of course it's extremely difficult to undertake the due diligence that's necessary to ensure that you're, you're going into the right uh, company if that's what you're looking for but many of the big uh, broking houses and investment houses offer an AIM portfolio service where they do that due diligence on an ongoing basis and they run uh, AIM portfolios with the intention of ensuring that the investor's money is only going into companies that, that do qualify. Yeah, I mean, you could turn it on its head and think that actually there's quite a large number of stocks um, that investors are putting their money into for, for these IHT reasons where perhaps they're not suitable because uh, particularly you know, older people owning sort of high risk aim quoted companies um, may not necessarily be the right thing for them to have because you know, yes they're trying to put their money in um, to, to pass it on to their estate when they die but um, in the interim period while they're still alive there's, there's a risk that actually these companies go through a lot of problems and um, they, they could destroy some of their wealth. So um, I guess it's always, it's always worth looking at both sides of the, the argument. 
you, you should never, I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously not an investment advisor in any way, I'm a tax lawyer, um, but in my opinion, you should never um, go into an investment purely for tax planning reasons and without considering that, uh, that risk um, factor. That's, that's absolutely right, uh, Daniel. But what the uh, businesses do, what the, the, the investment businesses do who offer these portfolios, they, they don't only um, carry out a due diligence exercise uh, with a view to ensuring that the, uh, the, the investee companies qualify for, for BPR. They're also looking for the biggest and most stable companies that qualify for BPR, and that's where they're encouraging people to put their money. I mean, there is no doubt that it is still inevitably higher risk than um, you know, it would be if you were looking at a, a, a conventional portfolio of, uh, of, of stocks and shares on the, on the main list. But it is as low risk as it can be, uh, and that's what it's designed to be. Uh, that's the, that's the, you know, the very reason that, that this level of tax-based investment has, has reached the point it has uh, in AIM. Uh, but no. in the old days, sorry to, to, to interrupt there, in the old days, of course, we always used to say, you know, back in the days of the USM, uh, which preceded AIM, we always used to say that losing all your money was the best possible form of tax planning. But um, nowadays, it's, it's rather different to that. Yeah, so I mean, last summer, I remember the Office of Tax Simplification sort of did give some hints that they were looking at um, this sort of area, saying that business property relief wasn't necessary to prevent a business from being broken up or sold in order to fund the payment of inheritance tax. So clearly, you know, the government might, or also connected parties might be looking at it. And it's not simply because of trying to find ways to, to, to raise some money to pay for all the costs of coronavirus support. This that is been, right. Yeah. So, sorry, I cut across you. That, that is absolutely right, Daniel. There, there are all kinds of um, reviews going on of inheritance tax at the moment. Uh, I personally would vehemently disagree with the proposition that uh, business property relief isn't necessary in its fundamental form. Uh, but I think, you, you know, you might be well justified in questioning whether it's necessary in relation to... Um, the AIM market and indeed other uh, over-the-counter markets which uh, which also qualify for, for BPR. Brilliant. Well, it, it's definitely a space I think investors are going to need to watch very closely. So, I mean, here at, at my firm at, at Wilkes, what we're trying to do for people who've gone into this scenario is to um, look at ways they can bank the business property relief that, they, that they're trying to get. And one of the ways of doing that is to drop the shares into trust uh, while they do still qualify for relief. So it isn't, even if the government, whether for reasons of principle or for uh, reasons of expedient uh, finance, uh, if, if they do attack the, uh, the relief, uh, then, you know, really people should be thinking now about whether there's any way they can they can forestall that by putting some some sort of additional planning measures in place thanks so much philip for your time okay that's all we've got time for this week um it's been great to be back after as dad said my um, my favorite holiday of all time i will definitely be walking through various foothills again and speaking to people about their retirement plans whether they ask me to or not um, thanks a lot for tuning in to this week's episode and as always please send any thoughts or ideas you have 
to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks. See you later. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.